Uh, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're ending a series today on family. And this is a, an important week for us. It's going to wrap everything up. And last week we dealt with a, a very um, difficult subject as it deals with relationship. And can I answer the question, what happens within me when I feel like blowing up? You know, when, when I, my kids are driving me crazy and I explode, why do I keep losing it on my kids? And, or, or whatever relationship you have, we, we uh, find a lot of application to uh, family, not in just reference to the, the physical family, but also the spiritual family. Uh, the good news for us when we deal with a topic like family is that it's relevant for everyone, no matter where you are in your life, because the place where God really teaches us how to function in our, in our physical relationships in this world is through the spiritual relationship. Relationship he's given us in Christ. Through our spiritual relationship in Jesus, through his church, we learn how to function in our relationships in a biblical, healthy way, or at least we should, because scripture gives that for us and uses the church as a model in how all relationships should handle. And so today we're going to deal with part two of the family feud, and, and this is the way we want to approach this. And we talked about if you're ever on edge, if you've got a frustration building up inside of you, how, to, how do you deal with that? Where is that coming from? Well, today we're going to deal with it from the other side. When you approach a, a, a discussion, we'll say, a healthy dialogue full of energy, and, and you're not the one maybe carrying that energy, how do you approach that dialogue in a way that produces something that God would desire? What we're after when we discuss these family relationships isn't that there's, there's just peace in the relationship or no one's bothering anyone else, you know, that, that you can just walk without. What we're after in relationship is really what God created uh, the family for. God created the family to be a blessing in this world, and so we just don't want peace established in the home, although peace is a wonderful thing, but peace becomes the platform for, for building more into what God desires in that family. And it told us in scripture, we saw this together, that God created the family to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the world. And so when the family functions the way that God desires, the family becomes a blessing to the world. The same is true for the church. When the church functions the way that God has created it for, the church is a blessing to the world. God has gifted us all uniquely as individuals. And it's through that gift, when that family functions well or functions the way that God has created it for, that the blessing of that family really makes itself known in the relationships around it. Now, I want, to know, I want us to recognize this morning, we approach this from the other side of, of the conflict, when, when you feel like there's hostility towards you. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm with you in the same boat here, but, but this, this, everything about this 100% applies to me because I am always in the camp of being right every time, Right? Yeah, okay. Uh, first lie this morning. Okay, good. So, so when we recognize in, in relationships, when adversity, when adversity comes our way, hostility tends to breed hostility. Something about you and your nature, when you are attacked, when you feel someone's aggressive towards you, there's something about you that becomes a, a defensive. There's something about us as people that, that want us to respond back. And how do you react and what's your tendency? Sometimes it's, it's the silent treatment. Sometimes we just blow up. Sometimes we litigate. Sometimes we try to, to create peace or, or to, to be a peacemaker at least and trying to please everyone in the situation. There's all sorts of ways that we react. Sometimes people, people go with this approach, like the, the I don't care approach, you know. Eventually get to this place in your life where you just, you just want to pronounce that. I don't, I don't care. I don't care anymore. You know, and, and, you know, for me, when I hear that statement, um, I never really believe it. And there's a few reasons why. Uh, if you really don't care, then I, I don't think that you're going to take the time to pronounce that you don't care. People that don't care don't take the time to pronounce they don't care. They just don't care, you know. But, but God has also created you as a being to care. 
And, and sometimes when we get to that place where we're saying, I don't care, what we're really saying is I'm in a place where I'm hurt and, and I really just want to back away or close off or, or, or shut things out. And so we, we, we use the phrase, I don't care, as a defense mechanism to express the pain that we're experiencing in relationships. And truth is, uh, we do care because we're created as people to care. And we see that re- reflected in God's nature. He cares. And that's, that's why Jesus came, right? In the midst of the complexity of relationships in this world, in the midst of destruction of sin, in the midst of our separation from him and relationship to him, and Jesus cares. And he created you in his image. And so saying you don't care, I, I don't think is a healthy approach to, to reflect to in relationships that are in a state of, of turmoil or, or difficulty. But to acknowledge simply when you get to that place, what we're really reflecting in our lives is that, that we do care, but sometimes we get in a position that it's so painful that we don't know what else to do other than just to treat it in, in this sort of callous way of wanting to close things off. Now, I'll say in the dynamic of relationships, there are places to put relationships into a perspective where sometimes if things aren't healthy, uh, distance helps, Right? But I, I want to ask this question this morning, when, when you're in the complexity of that relationship, how, how do you handle it? When you feel especially like you're not the aggressor, but you're the one on the defense, or you're the one that, uh, that's in that place where you feel like saying, I don't care, but you know deep down you really do care and your, your heart is struggling, what do you do with that? And so I want to, I want to answer this this morning from, from three perspectives. I'm going to talk about this theologically, I'm going to re- relate it to us pragmatically, and then I'm going to give us some application at the end. But I I think of no better place when we start talking about dysfunction in relationships than to go to the church that it was the, the epitome of dysfunction in relationships, which was the church of Corinth. And people often rephrase the, phrase the, uh, the Corinthians as the Corinthian catastrophe. If you want to just read about problems, read Corinthians. I mean, it's, just, it's like Paul answering a list of problems within the church. How do you handle uh, these, these relational dysfunctions with us towards God and interaction with each other? What does it look like? And Paul really starts to answer it for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14 as he describes us in relationship to Jesus and, and how Jesus handles us in the midst of our sin and in the midst of our dysfunction. And so I just want to start this morning because everything that we do in our relationship should be modeled in what Christ has done for us in his relationship towards us. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul describes it here in the next four verses. I'm just going to read this to you. It says, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So what is, what is Paul describing here? What, what Paul is really outlining for us is, is the gospel, this transition that happens in our life because completely of what Jesus has done for us apart from our sinful nature. And so what he goes through in this, this progression of thought is he, he demonstrates the love of God towards us, how Jesus gave his life for us so that now we could die to the old self and now live to the new self. 
And he says in verse 16 especially, he says, you know, at one point we even had it all wrong. We, we, we judged people by their outward appearance. We even did it to Jesus. But what Jesus wanted to do is far greater than just this outward appearance. He wanted to transform us from the inside out. And it says that in verse 17, he made us new creations. And this is why I say it's very important for us to understand when it deals with family. I've, I've harped on this throughout this series together. What God is after in our relationships is not behavior modification. It's heart transformation. And so this, this is very important because when you step into a marriage relationship or a relationship with, with anyone for that matter, you are not the agent for change in their lives. When you start pressing into someone to become exactly what you want them to be, you may be pressing into them something that they aren't able to give in the moment. And so what God is after in that, in that individual is not just to modify their behavior. What God is after is their heart because when God gets your heart, he transforms your life. And that's what it says exactly. Exactly in verse 17, God, in, in God, we experience this transformation where the old things have passed, the new things have, have become. And everything that Jesus has done for us has been exactly what we needed for that transformation. And that is what is reconciliation in relationships. That is what Jesus has done for us when we were alienated from him. He has reconciled us, right? He paid the price. There is this book called Love and Respect. It deals with a marriage relationship when tension builds. And, and in the book, they refer to something called the crazy cycle. And the crazy cycle goes like this. When someone wrongs you, it builds this frustration up in you. And so you begin to attack back. And, and when you attack back, guess what? The person who now feels attacked begins to attack back because they feel wronged. And all of a sudden, this crazy cycle begins. And it doesn't end. Until when? When someone's willing to lay down their lives for the benefit of the others. Right? With Jesus. We're enemies of God. Sin has pitted us against him. And the crazy cycle began. But in Christ, it comes to an end. Because Jesus lays himself down for the benefit of the other. And this is the idea of what reconciliation is about. Working through the adversity of, and complexity in relationship. And, and the truth is, when you read 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 to 17, when you see this, this beautiful ending to what Jesus has done for us, we recognize that the heart of the gospel, in order for Jesus to bring this about for our lives, for him, it was a tremendous sacrifice. You know, today, today, when we talk about relationships, there, there is this understanding that if, if you desire what Christ desires in those relationships, we said this in the beginning, it is about leveraging all that you are for the benefit of others. It's about taking the giftedness that God has given you and the platform God has placed you on and using that for the health of others. And when the, when the family is able to function in a healthy way, spiritually or physically, it is beautiful. And it tells us in verse 17, the result of that is that we are, are a new creature in Christ. All things have become new. This relationship now, this, this platform of, uh, of a new beginning in Jesus has been presented because of the sacrifice on Christ. 
Christ's part. And this is Jesus' posture. I think in, in Revelation, it gives us a, a beautiful picture of the way Christ continues to progress in this posture towards us. In Revelation chapter 3, he's writing to a church. I think it's the Laodiceans. And he notes in Revelation, he, he writes about seven churches, some, uh, some in good position with him, some in, in sinful position with him. Most of them are, are walking contrary to Jesus. And, and the same is true for verse 20 of Revelation. In reference to the church, this is where Jesus tells, him, uh, tells them his posture is. He says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I have come into him and will dine with him and he with me. And Jesus' continued posture towards his people is one that is always standing in a position for reconciliation to open the door and to, to dine with him. Jesus wants to set the table for us, right? The, the unique thing about this verse and, and its relationship to, to, to us in Christ is that Jesus isn't, isn't forcing himself in this verse. It tells us that he is, he is knocking, he's standing there. He's always in a position for us to connect with him, to dine with him, to commune with him. And Jesus' desire is for you to experience relationship with him. When we talk about reconciliation towards Christ, that's the picture, right? You can't force people to change. In fact, if you try to force people, you may force onto them something that they aren't able to give or willing to give. But you can set the table. Jesus in the cross set the table. The sacrifice of Christ is sufficient for everyone, but only efficient for those who believe. And to the church, that relationship continues to be extended, even to the Laodiceans who are walking in sin. Jesus recites them and states to them, listen, I'm standing at the door, I'm waiting for you, I I have set the table for reconciliation. He, He has set the table for success in relationship to him. So this is what I want us to understand as we approach this passage as Corinthians that we're looking at together in chapter five, verses 14 and on. When when we're talking about reconciliation, Jesus is using Using this contextually in relationship to us and God in the gospel, okay? And that's really important to know because what I'm going to do is pragmatically apply it to all of our lives. And this is what I want you to understand. When we look at this passage, um, hermeneutically, I'm taking a leap here. And this is the leap. Verse 5, or chapter 5, verses 14 on to verse 20. It is solely talking about our relationship to God in connection through the gospel, And you're going to see now in verse 18, this is what Jesus begins to say. Through Paul, he says this, Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us now the ministry of reconciliation. Now when he says this, he's talking specifically in context to the gospel. He's saying, just as Jesus now has reconciled you to him, guess what? Now you have the opportunity to present this to the world that they may experience reconciliation with Christ. Now, this is important to understand because from this point of what Jesus has done for us in the gospel, this is dealing with us vertically to God, this now will affect us horizontally in all of our relationships. That now in everything you do in the dynamic of relationships with people in this world, it should reflect the behavior of the gospel. 
Jesus loves me despite my sin. Therefore, I should not be saying, and I can't love you because of your sin. Everything about the gospel and the way that I interact demonstrates to us a God who has set the table for us to commune with him. Entirely about the gospel, now affecting our relationships. Listen to how it plays out in the rest of scripture. This is what Paul says in Colossians 3 because of this relationship. He says this in verse 13. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. You know, I thought this week, you know, I'm going to give some great illustrations of people in church history who have had to really forgive when things were difficult. And I started reading church history today and I thought, or throughout this week and, and all these illustrations. And I read some super um, <laughs> illustrations of great forgiveness in the lives of people who paid tremendous costs at captors and persecutors, some to the extent that they had even given their lives. And you know, you know this is what I concluded after reading all these great stories this week. I'm not going to share any of them. Um, Because sometimes what tends to happen when you think about relationships in your life that seem complicated, to then just read another complicated relationship on top of that is not encouraging, right? When you look at a text like this and you realize what Jesus is saying and what we need to demonstrate in our heart, and you connect it to relationships that are difficult in life, I mean, I acknowledge this morning, that that is hard. And that is painful. And how exactly... Um, how exactly can we even begin to approach these types of, of situations in our life where when we start putting faces to adversity and, and, and we get worn out and we feel like saying, I don't care, but it's not that we don't care, but the pain, the pain is just so deep. How, how do we navigate through that? This word for reconciliation, even in itself, when you define it in its basic sense, is a painful word. I mean, it, it really says you take two things that don't belong together or aren't fitting together, I should say, and you fit them together, right? Because when reconciliation needs to happen, there's this brokenness, this separation, and to reconcile means to take those two ends and put them together. And the thought of what Jesus has done, the the thought is this, he has not declared war, uh, war on the world, but at the cross he has declared peace. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9, when Jesus is delivering the Sermon on the Mount, he said this, blessed are the peacemakers. You know, there's there's a big difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking, And when we talk about reconciliation, it does not mean that you can't work through complicated things or that you ignore them. That's the difference between understanding what peacemaking is and peacekeeping. Peacekeeping kind of says this, oh no, things are getting difficult. Let's just, let's just sweep it under the rug. Everyone just hug and make up. Let's not talk about this. But, but, but peacemaking says this, you're pursuing in the complexity of relationship to communicate about what happened so that you can work through that, right? I mean, when Jesus made peace, this is the beautiful thing about the way Jesus makes peace. He is honest about sin. 
and he still loves. I mean, Jesus comes into the moment and, and he tells us, listen, we are sinful. But you know the beauty of that? It gives us a place to acknowledge it. Because on the back end of acknowledging it, we've already recognized that God still loves us. And so there isn't this fear in acknowledging the sin that has, has, has pulled us from him that on the back end of that, that God isn't going to accept you. He loves you. And that's really what peacemaking is. Blessed are the peacemakers. Why? Because your love in those moments far exceeds the sin. And in that love, it gives you a place of security to be honest and to find reconciliation. And so Paul builds further. He says this, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now look at this in verse 20. This is, this is really powerful for me. It says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You know, the job of an ambassador uh, politically in our world today, when he goes to a country to represent uh, us as that country, do you know who, who he represents? President of the United States. The president has policies which he wants to reflect to certain countries. And that ambassador's job is to represent what the president stands for. In our sake, for Christ, Jesus, in this position, calls us the ambassadors to reconciliation, which, which means this. The closer someone is to you, the closer they should be to the miracle that God wants to work in them. I mean, the opposite could be true. Then the further someone is from you, the further they are from the miracle that God wants to work in them. And not because of anything great that we've done, but because of the goodness of who Jesus is and what he desires to work through us. I mean, it says it right here, right? As though God were making an appeal through us. He's calling you an ambassador because of what God wants to do through you in this world. And so the closer someone should be to you, the reality is the closer they should be to the miracle that Jesus wants to work in their lives. I mean, that's the complete opposite that we saw in James last week. And James says this, do you know why you lust and destroy? It's because of what's in you. And when you act that out, you kill relationships. What God really wants to work in you is a miracle. And what God really wants to work through you is a miracle. points to the beauty of who God is that he would not only extend into sinners but still work through us. I heard someone ask once and we all go through this. Going in a relationship that was tense and, and having poured into it and, and they just wanted to quit and so they went to a Christian counselor and they just said this, when can I give up? When is enough enough? And he, and he said this, well, as a believer... You can give up on them when God gives up on you. 
And that's what that word ambassador means. You're reflecting the king. And the king in his love doesn't quit on you. So how do you do this? This is hard. Reconciliation is an easy word, but if we see what God wants to do, the miracle that he wants to work in verse 20, verse 17 says this, that all things become new. How, how do we do this? How can we be the same door knocker that Jesus is where he wants to, to set the table? And when we set the table, what we mean is that we're, we're not forcing people to reconcile. We're not forcing people to become something they aren't. What, what God has called us to do is to set the table so that the place of reconciliation can happen. But you can't force anyone to do that. But what you can do is to reflect the goodness of God. And, and for being honest with us, with ourselves, I mean, it, it, without reconciliation, if you think about it for just a moment, what we're carrying in ourselves without reconciliation is the, the retribution towards someone because of the way that they've wronged us. And then on the other end of that, we carry and harbor within our hearts that frustration and tension because we've made ourselves the place of justice and the place of wrath. That's a lot to weigh on the human heart. How do we get there? Well, the first thing I'd say to us is there is a need to sympathize or empathize with those that we need reconciled towards. First Peter 3, this, this statement comes in an interesting context in the book of First Peter 3. Uh, I'll tell you this week, if you want to read some thoughts on reconciliation, chapter 2 and 3 are really good on that. Because chapter 2, he starts talking about the, the, the leaders of Rome who are persecuting Christians and how to, how to reconcile with them and how to honor God in their lives. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, he talks about uh, relationships in marriage and family. And then he concludes with this thought. He goes, now finally, all of you should be like-minded and sympathetic should love believers and be compassionate and humble. Not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this so that you can inherit a blessing. All of you should be sympathetic. In that place in your life where you're trying to get to that spot where you say, I don't care and harden the heart, what God has created the heart to, to be sympathetic or even empathetic towards uh, someone else. And, and, and just previous to this, it, it says, husbands, treat your wives uh, as really women who are prepared for glory, glory, joint heirs with you as a weaker vessel. Now, it's not saying that women are, are less than men in this passage of Scripture, but what it is acknowledging is that women are made different than men. I, I give this illustration when I read this passage of 1 Peter when it talks about the wives. He, he's acknowledging men, treat your wives like that ornate, valuable piece of art within the home. You think in your house, the thing that's sacred or the thing that's important to you or your family, you put it either in a prominent position or a safe place to protect it. Sometimes you, you put things in your homes for, for beauty. It's this ornate piece that you want to center a room around. And so when you walk into that room, the beauty of what it is is reflected when you step into that room, but it's also a place to keep it safe where hands won't touch it or harm it. You know how it goes when you have two-year-olds, you just raise it up a little bit, right? Out of arm's reach, you cannot touch this. If you do, I will cry or someone will die, right? This, this thing is so valuable. That's what it's saying about the wife. 
be sympathetic. Sometimes it helps us to step out of ourselves when we are wrong. And what I mean is when someone comes against you, the, the, the tendency is to be defensive. But if we were to maybe turn on a sympathetic ear, maybe we could answer this question within our own lives. If you're feeling tension towards your spouse or towards someone in the family relationship, you ask this question. What's it like being married to you? Right? I mean, for that club where everyone is right 100% of the time, for the two or three of you that may think that you belong, maybe that won't get you to turn a sympathetic ear. (laughs) But, But what's it like being married to you? Roses, the image of perfection. After we talk about Jesus, you should be the next picture. And Paul says in this passage to be like-minded, sympathetic. And, and, And in this illustration of 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14, I think Paul says a very important phrase as it reflects to our relationship with God. He says this, for the love of Christ controls us. You know, he just said in verses 18 to 20, you are an ambassador. You're given the ministry of reconciliation. God wants to work his miracle in the lives of people and God chooses to do it through his church. God wants to do that. And if you want to know how that happens, listen to verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Some translations uh, translate this word as compels us. It's this word that means in Greek to hold together or, or to hold completely. Do you know why Jesus is able to hold it together and hold it completely and compel you? It's because of the definition of what his love is about. Love is unconditional, sacrificial commitment towards someone else. This love is what compels us. Notice this verse doesn't say, and it's my love for God that compels me. But rather this verse says, it's God's love for me that compels me. Now, if you think of this in the terms of reconciliation for just a moment, and you think of who you are in relationship to Jesus and apart from Jesus, it's Jesus who's done everything to pursue you. It's Jesus who has sacrificed everything on your behalf. It's Jesus who's done everything, standing at the door and knocking so that you would have the opportunity to sit before the table with him. It's Christ who has carried the entire burden for your benefit. It's that type of love that transforms relationships. So if you're saying, in my relationship, there is this tension and I want to work through it, but I'm thinking on my end, I just want them to change what this verse says in Scripture, that if you want change, don't expect it from someone who can't give it, but rather, here's what Jesus says. It is his complete love towards us that caused us to turn back to him. In our sin, we look at the beauty of who he is, and we cannot believe that someone even began to lavish that kind of love on us. So we step to the table and commune. And this verse will never say, do you know what caused the heart of someone to change? It was the, it was the anger and the hatred that you reflected back because of the anger and the hatred they reflected to you. Man, they loved it so much, they just wanted to be near you. No. It's when someone lays down their lives It's when Jesus laid down his life. Elizabeth Barrett Browning was uh, a poet 
in the 1800s. Most of her poetry was written uh, mid-1800s. She was married to Robert Browning. They, they were considered some of the most popular uh, poets in the Victorian era. In fact, Emily Dickinson said that the person that most influenced her in her poetry writing was Elizabeth Barrett Browning. But when Elizabeth uh, was married to Robert Browning, her family disapproved. And so she married, and, and her family just cut her off. And so she went away with him to Italy. And the story goes, for the next 10 years, she wrote to her family every week about her love for them. After 10 years, she received a box of letters in the mail back to her. Every letter she had written never opened. In fact, it's one of the greatest um, Consider one of the great literary works from the 1800s that you can read today, the, letter, the letters that she had written to her family. I know that in her relationship, there's no great story of reconciliation, but in her relationship, what you find is a lady who set the table. A lady who stood at the door and knocked. A lady when she could have said, I don't care, she still demonstrated an attitude of caring. A lady who wrote words like this, God's gifts put man's best dreams to shame. Why could someone do that? Why would someone do that? I think Elizabeth Browning understood where her real relationship in life was. It was secure in Christ. I think the only reason someone could continue to extend that way It's because of a verse like 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14. It's the love of Christ that compelled her. It's the sympathy that she learned in Jesus that compelled her. So let me just encourage you this way. When when God's love uh, reminds you of where you were apart from him, and what you receive because of him. I think it teaches us in our hearts and our lives to learn sympathy and even empathy towards other people who, who are in rebellion towards God because of the way they are in, interacting in relationship. And in the intensity of that relationship, when people are living contrary to God, it's a place for you as an ambassador for, for Jesus that God wants to perform in you the miracle or through you, the miracle that he wants to do in their lives. God uses his people to work in the hearts of those around them. And so the encouragement to us is, is not to transform behavior, not to modify behavior, not to press into someone the opportunity to change, but to set the table for them to experience reconciliation. And the way that we do that is to seek the heart. And so let me give you a practical illustration. When someone's mad at you, or when you feel frustration in a relationship building to end the crazy cycle, it gives you the platform to say this. What you just said or did felt unloving. Is there something I did to make you feel unloved? Or is there something I did to make you feel disrespected? Last week we dealt with, dealt with James and the challenges of James and the anger of James and how anger causes us to destroy relationships. Even though there's anger and even though it's destroying, in our anger we're still communicating something. And what we communicate is that there is a need that's unmet. In, in immaturity we communicate that, but we're communicating it. 
And it gives you the platform then to seek the heart of the individual in that frustration to minister to their heart to say, you know, that felt unloving. Was there something, was there something I did to make you feel unloved? It opens the door for communication. I'm going to tell you, when that door opens, you're going to get one of two responses. Oh, they care about me. Let's talk, right? Or, or they're just going to continue to puke, right? Blah, further, further frustration. And let me tell you, this is where it gives you the platform to say, you know, I hear what you're saying but I also hear the way you're saying it. And I can tell by the way that you're saying it that you're not ready to reconcile what this situation is. But when you feel ready, come talk to me because my door's open. I would encourage you in Ephesians chapter four, the Bible gives us uh, plenty of verses that gives us a platform to how to deal in relationships in family. When you find that yourself, you're in intense situations and the way that you the way that you function in relationships. Ephesians 4 and verse 29, we've looked at this a few times. It says this, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only as such a word that is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Encouragement for you. When you are in this family relationship, when you set the table, it doesn't give someone the platform then to come and continue to attack you because that continues to destroy. But what it does is it gives you the opportunity to open the invitation to dialogue. And when someone violates this, they're not in a position to talk. But what you've done is set the table for reconciliation. What God wants to do through you is work his miracles. You can't force someone to change, but you can set the table. When you read church history, you see plenty of people who have sacrificed themselves to continue to be people that set the table. Why? Because it reflects their king. And they are ambassadors. So this is what I encourage you with. When Paul wrote Galatians, he had just finished a trip to Galatia and experienced hardship on this trip because of persecution. And what does he say to those in Galatia? Don't lose heart in doing good. For in due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. When we talk about reconciliation. We're not trying to figure out how to manipulate people just to get what we want. What we're doing is pleasing our king. At the end of the day, when you've set the table, you have the opportunity to lay your head down knowing you still cared, you didn't close your heart, and you didn't try to force someone to change, which creates further conflict. But you represented your king. Don't give up on that. More than anything in those moments, what you've done is please Jesus. And that night when you go to bed, you can rest your head knowing You've lived your life the way that God desires. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.